Hi there, I'm Jay Goldstein, head of program at Petrie. I'm your host, and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast. For those of you who don't know us yet, Petrie develops companies attacking the world's largest problems at the frontier of biology and engineering. This podcast is about spotlighting inspiring founders who are innovating and improving human health and sustainability. Today's episode is focused on health data and clinical trials. We'll talk to Paul Bleicher, founder of Phase Forward, which later went public and was ultimately acquired by Oracle. Paul has had just about every job in the healthcare industry. Before Phase Forward, he was a physician and scientist. He's had stints across CROs and biopharmas. And after Phase Forward, he was the chief medical officer of Humedica and CEO of Optum Labs. In this episode, we're going to learn about Paul's start as a founder. We'll take a deep dive into the science, we'll explore its impact, and finally, we'll get three concrete tips from Paul to help founders, perhaps like you, who are building at the intersection of biology and engineering. Paul, it's great to have you with us here today. Let's start first with your roots as a founder and how you came to found Face Forward and become entrepreneurial. My family was a family of little entrepreneurs, not the kind of entrepreneurs we think of today, but little, you know, people who owned their own businesses and started businesses. And so I was comfortable with that idea. Uh, and I think even going back to, to the time when I was getting my, uh, my PhD uh, and uh, my MD, I was, I was always thinking it was at the very beginning of, uh, of biotech, the really earliest days, and I was thinking uh, of ideas, I, uh, constantly kind of generating things. But I had intended to follow the classic triple threat um, academic career, be uh, a researcher, uh, a clinician, this is what an MD PhD does, and a teacher. And I, I actually followed that dream through an MD PhD program and my residency and, um, and everything and, and got into a position where I was funded doing as a faculty member at uh, Mass General Hospital at Harvard Medical School, doing research and actually uh, publishing some high impact papers in a, in a new area. And I realized that what I really liked is translation. I liked taking ideas from their you know, basic science origins and turning them into practical um, solutions. And, and the way I saw that and I got to observe firsthand was my wife left a PhD faculty position at Harvard Medical School to go into, a, into the early biotech industry. And I loved the way that everybody collaborated on the same problems rather than it being a bunch of individual labs who were working on their own individual problems. So I, I, I set out to follow her in that. And, and the, the way that I thought uh, I could make the most impact was by doing clinical trials. And so I went off to a contract research organization doing clinical trials and then to a biomedical company running clinical trials. And that is where I learned the frustration and pain and and challenges and limitations and and delays that that the traditional clinical trial process caused and that that of course you know sort of ignited my entrepreneurial spark and led to me forming uh, face forward with my friend Let's dig a little deeper into Phase Forward and add Tony Colessa into the conversation. So Tony is a partner here at Petrie and oversees our health portfolio. Tony? Great. Yeah, Paul, can you talk a little bit about how was data captured at the time when you were starting Phase Forward 
And there are so many problems you probably could have picked to attack in healthcare. How did you originate the ideas to attack problems in data capture? Well, the the base problem in clinical trials is that you need to collect data on patients. That data is a result of traditional physician visits as part of a clinical trial. Um, but the pharmaceutical company or the biotech company uh, needs to get that data in a de-identified form. So there has to be sort of a separation between those two things. And there's potential motivation for each side to make mistakes and potentially to modify the data in some way. That doesn't happen in the vast, vast majority of clinical trials, but uh, Regulatory authorities, the FDA and others, are concerned about that. So a system was created whereby three-part NCR forms were produced, and the information was collected, first of all, in the traditional record on paper, and then transferred to uh, a three-part NCR form. One part of it got sent into the uh, doctors, uh, into the uh, pharmaceutical company to be data entered by data entry clerks and a double data entry so that no mistakes were made. And so that cumbersome system led to, on average, about a six-month delay in the completion of a clinical trial before data was clean enough to be locked. And the data needed to be locked before it could be unblinded and we could determine what the, um, what the actual benefit of the, of the treatment was. That process is, is what we turned into a fully electronic, more or less instantaneous process that incorporated both the collection, original collection of data and the review of data and the back and forth exchanges with a complete audit trail that was acceptable enough to the FDA to be used for approvals. But we, we actually helped the pharmaceutical industry even to some extent, the FDA in pushing the envelope a little bit, understand, you know, the practical implications of that 21 CFR 11 rule that has become so important in, in people's, uh, anybody who works in uh, clinical trials. With such a comprehensive vision, I mean, you talk about building really end-to-end -end products. How did you decide where to start attacking? Like, what would, what did the first product look like? And how did you drive adoption and an extremely risk-averse and highly regulated industry. For our first product, the vision we originally had was that this had to be a complete offering, that each clinical trial would be entirely encapsulated in, in a server. And it would, it, we actually went for the entire vision of, uh, uh, because you couldn't do part of it. You really had to do the whole thing. But it was gonna be a monolithic server per company, per clinical trial, because we were concerned about the separation and that, that there would be a lot of resistance. And that this was before SAS, uh, SAAS, it was before all of the off-prem kind of things, but we were planning on hosting this off-prem and having everybody have a login for this. Well, it was very quickly after we um, started having interest in this, the company said, well, I don't want to have to pay you and have you involved in every clinical trial I want. I want to have this for all of my clinical trials. So I want you to, to create this so that 
I can uh, use it. And so that it can be on my premises or, you know, that was pre-cloud. And I, I want it to be multi-tenant. I don't want it to be one, uh, you know, one trial, one box, because that, that I do hundreds of clinical trials, that'll be too expensive. And so we actually had to go back to the drawing board and it's not so easy to go into the guts and middleware of a product and actually change uh, those things to make something go from single tenant to multi-tenant and all of that. But that's what we did. So we were overly conservative in interpreting the uh, rules and the conservatism of the industry. So let's zoom forward to today. The world is maybe in a similar transitional state around some of the new technologies being brought to bear. An area that we've talked about at the forefront of artificial intelligence is causality. I know this is an, an area of, of passion for you. Can you talk a little bit about the science of causality and where you see opportunities to solve new challenges in healthcare? Clinical trials are an attempt, essentially, a very, a very successful, our best way to be able to isolate a treatment and determine that that treatment itself had an effect. And, and why do I say that? So this gets to the science of, of what causal influence is. In order to be able to, um, to infer that a particular treatment or exposure or, um, or thing uh, actually caused something, you have to demonstrate that, that whatever it caused listened to or was affected by the, um, the thing that you're studying, the, let's say just for this, the treatment that you're studying. And the problem is that there are, you might be able to take two groups of, of data that you've observed and match them on all the things you think might have caused that particular, um, you know, uh, might affect the treatment's uh, effect on the outcome. But you don't know. You don't know a lot of things. And often there are many, many different things which actually can, under the covers, lead to a difference in, in prescribing and a difference in outcome. And if you have a difference in prescribing and a difference of outcome, now those two things are linked in ways that you didn't anticipate. So what a clinical trial does is it randomizes and it separates out those things so that hopefully if it's large enough, um, those things can be balanced if the randomization is done properly. And the only thing that's different between groups can be uh, the particular treatment that you're using. So that's the science of causal inference. Let me ask a pointed question to summarize or to synthesize. Judea Pearl, you know, talks about randomized controlled trials as a special case of causal inference. Do you think we'll ever be living in a world where RCTs is, are not the the kind of de facto standard of medicine? Well, no. I think RCTs are going to get much more efficient, um, but RCTs are are limited. There are problems with RCTs because in general, but especially from a pharmaceutical perspective, um, 
you really want to get to a good answer, a clean answer, one that, um, that has the least amount of variance. And so the way you often will do that is by restricting the groups. You know, you say, I want this only in 18 to 55 year olds. This is only for people who have stable cardiovascular disease and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by narrowing it like that, you, you get rid of a, a lot of the sort of outliers and get a tighter answer between placebo and, and treated. But it's not necessarily the way the drug is going to be prescribed or treatment is going to be prescribed in the, in the real world. And it's not necessarily the same outcome that you're going to get. And we've seen this actually when you look at the data uh, from the COVID vaccines. The COVID vaccine trials were designed um, and, and they were narrowed to some extent to people who had stable, stable concurrent um, conditions and things like that. And when you then looked at the paper that Pfizer published from 600,000 patients in Israel, you got a lot more rich information, uh, not just because of the numbers, but because it was the way that the vaccine was actually used rather than how the vaccine was used in artificial settings. And that's really, really important. So at Optum Labs, I was instrumental in starting something called the Operand Initiative, where we took a few clinical trials and demonstrated that with electronic health record data and with claims data, it should be possible to reproduce the results of those clinical trials. And in theory, use that kind of information to support clinical trials. So I think, uh, and the, uh, the operand uh, study results have not been uh, released, and I'm anxiously waiting to see if we in fact were right. But um, importantly, I think the world in the future is going to look like this. Clinical trials are going to be more efficient. They'll be done at home. There'll be devices that'll be used to collect them. They'll be more like virtual clinical trials. Um, there'll be more patient information, which is very important, uh, patient outcomes information. And it might be that um, for some indications, a, a clinical trial might be supported by uh, uh, several real world evidence investigations, and that that might be sufficient for FDA approval for a label extension or for use in special populations or something like that. As you know, there are a lot of off-label uses of medicines, and there are uses in, of medicines in other countries uh, and, and things like that, where you can collect that as real-world evidence and put together a credible support for a clinical trial that, that actually studies that off-label use. And I think together that kind of, the FDA has signaled that, that you know, they're actually willing to uh, look at that kind of package to uh, for approvals. And, and they are beginning to use real world evidence as substitutes for placebo in certain, uh, you know, unusual circumstances as historical controls, et cetera. Hmm. Well, yeah, let's turn it back over to Jay um, to talk about the impact that you're looking to have um, in your work with entrepreneurs and in your current projects. Paul, I, it's clear you've had some incredible impact in the field. What are you sort of most proud of uh, when you think about your own impact looking backwards and then also looking forward? What kind of impact do you still hope to have? Sure. Um, well, looking 
backwards, we've done some really special things with Optum Labs uh, and putting together a, a major consortium that was, uh, you know, highly impactful with Humedica, uh, etc. But I think Phase Forward actually does represent a really, really unique thing, which is at the time that we started, 95 plus percent, it was probably more like 98 uh, percent of clinical trials were done by the paper process that I described. There were a smattering of pilots that were being done with uh, faxes and electronic uh, uh, platforms. But, you know, literally, we conceived of this idea uh, to be done on the internet. It was, you know, not something that a lot of people believed was possible. And we took that idea from something that actually went from that smattering of clinical trials to nowadays pretty much every uh, phase two and phase three clinical trial in the industry is done uh, with electronic health records. And we, uh, Phase Forward was a major leader in that um, before its acquisition by Oracle. So um, that, that, that's a, I think, a huge accomplishment that I don't think about all that much. Actually, I don't sit at home uh, pondering that. You know, going forward, I, I've actually chosen to balance my life and, um, and work uh, in a way that I never actually gave myself a chance to uh, in the past. And so I'm uh, exploring things like astrophotography and, and um, all, all sorts of things that are passions of mine. But I'm focusing on working with some uh, entrepreneurs that are dealing with problems that I think are significant problems in, in healthcare and in um, pharmaceutical development that, that like Phase Forward, I think can really change the way the industry thinks about and manages uh, it, it, you know, in two examples that I'm working with, uh, getting some of that real world evidence that um, that is that is important for understanding how uh, how drugs are used, and in another example, I'm thinking about in um, the care of patients with um, uh, who are diagnosed with new and chronic diseases that require a variety of treatments from both medication as well as lifestyle changes and other things. And those are just two examples of companies that I'm working with that where I see entrepreneurs who are bright, who are motivated, who are thoughtful. I love the fact that there's a new generation of people that I can help and share the things that I've learned. And that's why I'm really having fun with Petrie and um, what I've been doing with entrepreneurs. That is a perfect transition, Paul, actually, to getting into some tips for founders. I'd love to have you give some advice to those who are emerging on particularly a couple of areas. The first one is driving adoption in healthcare. Healthcare is traditionally like very risk adverse uh, for good reason, right? So what are some of the strategies that you've used to drive adoption, uh, especially with Phase 4 and Humedica? What tips would you give for founders trying to... Um, get a very risk adverse community to try new things? Yeah, well, one is to recognize something that exists in both the pharmaceutical industry and in healthcare, 
whether it's in payers or um, or providers or or um, or others, which is the piloting syndrome. It's really important to understand that there are people who do very important things. They build their careers on piloting and being at the cutting edge of things. Um, and they're incredibly important for the industry. They're incredibly important for entrepreneurs. But I've seen many entrepreneurs who get a big name company or a big name institution to be working with them. And they think that they've, they've really made it at that point and that you know, it's going to just kind of flow. And they haven't read Crossing the Chasm. I always recommend Crossing the Chasm to people. It's, a, it's now an older book and it talks about the adoption of CD players and things like that. But it does recognize that, that uh, it, does, it, it, it actually laid out the foundation for understanding that there are the technology gurus or, or well, and then the early adopters. And then there's the early majority. In order to be successful, you have to make it a, a, a splash in that early majority. And there's a chasm between the early adopters and the early majority because the early adopters are willing to have wires sticking out of the machine and they're willing to, you know, unplug things and plug things and reboot things or whatever, you know, the metaphor you want to use. The early adopters want to hear from people like them who have used it in used whatever your solution is in industrial fashion. And it's really hard to get that kind of recommendation to get that kind of experience when you're just dealing with the early adopters who are, who are you know, uh, focused on different issues and who the early majority may not believe. So that's one thing. Don't get sucked into the, um, into the piloting problem. Number two, don't get sucked into the, the customization. There is a fine line you have to walk. Once you get some key players who are working with you, you do have to meet their needs, but you also have to have a vision and define the solution you're making. And to some extent, even your early customers have to actually change, often have to change what they're doing in order to meet the new process that you're developing. And if you don't do that, you wind up just creating either either becoming a custom shop, which you know works, um, and you know there are gigantic consulting companies that that are successful, but it's a totally different approach, and probably won't make your uh, investors all that happy if you have venture investors, or you you wind up building something that you think is broadly applicable and it turns out that nobody else wants it because it is so specifically designed for you know one or two customers so i think that that's a hazardous thing the third thing i could go on for you know for a while. <laughs> the third thing that i think uh, is is really challenging but is important in in these two industries is that a lot of the people who come to, especially if we're talking about, as um, probably a lot of your listeners uh, are, talking about technology people who are uh, building web-based or even uh, material technologies for, uh, for these industries. Paul, let's talk about team composition. and uh, building phase forward, who were some of the early hires that you made? Do you have any tips for founders on thinking about the composition of their team should be? 
Well, yeah, I, I think, first of all, this is sort of another tip that, that, are, that I learned from my co-founder at, at Facebook. So Richard Dale told me that when you found a company, it's really important to A, do whatever it needs to do, you need to do to make your company successful. Because in the end, what you're trying to do is maximize your value uh, f- uh, in legitimate ways for your shareholders and for you. And if that means mopping the floor on a particular day or doing some task which you think is beneath you, you do it because that's what entrepreneurs do. You have to be all in committed. I, I, it doesn't mean you do that forever. Hopefully you hire someone to do things that, that you're not so good at, but, but you do it at first. And also it's really important for entrepreneurs to recognize what they're good at and what they're not so good at and what they, what it's not worth the investors taking a risk on. And that was something that I had to do in phase forward. I was coming from the biotech industry. I had never led a company. I had I hadn't ever been near a uh, technology company and uh, the investors loved me and thought I was really important, but they insisted that I, that I commit to hiring a CEO. And so we hired a CEO at Face Forward who was an industry veteran. Uh, and that was really, really important um, for me to be able to, and a lot of entrepreneurs can't do that. They're like, no, this is my baby. I'm going to be the CEO. So I also recognize that my, uh, my talents were kind of vision and industry knowledge and networking and a variety of other things, but that I, I couldn't do the books or, uh, you know, I, in terms of keeping things running like clockwork, that probably wasn't where my forte was. So Fortunately, uh, my co-founder was really good at that. Was his expertise, and he was happy to give up the the CEO position so that I so that he could be our the COO, if you will. Then, of course, a VP of engineering, if you're running an engineering company, is essential, and you, you've got to have someone who who has vision. If you are not someone who knows the industry and has felt the pain of the industry, you've got to hire someone who did, who is. Not just as a consultant who you touch bases with once a week, you've got to have someone in the company who's committed to its success and who knows the problems cold and can answer the questions. You've now been through a bunch of startups. I'm wondering if you've seen some trends on sort of what are the, the key early stages that every startup seems to go through. And if you are a founder not knowing what these are, could you sort of paint a picture of some, some patterns or trends that you've started to, to see with these early stage companies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, early on, there's the stage where it's a small group of people and they're thinking about it and, and coming up with plans. And some of those plans I've noticed are sort of pie in the sky and aren't grounded necessarily in, in clarity. And some of them are, you know, really nail down a lot of clarity, whether or not you actually follow that doesn't make a difference, but creating a business plan 
even if you're someone who, sh who could easily get funded without a business plan or whatever, creating a business plan is a little bit like writing a grant for an academic. It forces you to actually think through the challenges and get them down on paper. A and in doing so, you often will like have these aha moments, uh, especially if you're working with a, you know, a few people. Oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, how are we going to get around that and do better? Then next, it's uh, bringing the people in, hiring the people, getting going with your ideas, getting to uh, an MVP, a minimal, minimally viable product, which is didn't exist. That term wasn't used back when uh, I started Face Forward, and then coming up with a rhythm, a, a regular, uh, you know, drumbeat of operations and normalizing the way you're going to do releases and the way you're going to, um, you know, what you're going to put in and what you're not going to put in and how you're going to make those decisions. And then, then comes the, I think, the period where you begin calling on customers. And it, it's a period where you have, I think, in some ways, that's a period where you decide who you are as a business. Are you going to be uh, really run-of-the-mill and boring and, and, and not uh, attractive? Are you going to be wild with promises that you can't keep and eventually disappointing? Or are you going to walk the line of creating a vision and also grounding it in reality, both internally and externally, which I think is the best way uh, to operate? Um, and finally, there's uh, the time when you do cross the chasm and, um, and you do, those orders start coming in. Um, and that's the time of, I think, biggest operational risk where you promised a lot, you sold a bunch, and now you start to see the problems and um, you, start to, you start to have to make this work the way you envisioned it as being a, a smooth operation that is reliable. And of course, a lot of what I'm saying is because most of the businesses I've been in have been B2B businesses. They haven't been B2C. You know, being able to, to anticipate and have operational discipline is really important. And finally, uh, this, this kind of goes through all of the uh, stages. Um, figuring out what your business model is, who you're going to sell to, whether they'll actually pay uh, for it is something you have to constantly be rethinking. And based on the feedback you get, you may have to modify. And so being creative about changing and modifying that business model to make you successful was really important at, at all of the companies that I've been at. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, with us. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for inviting me. And I hope that in some way this can lit a light bulb in, in some listener's mind and, and change the way that they go about doing what they're doing. I hope so too. Thanks, Paul. If you haven't yet signed up for our Petri newsletter, go to our website, petri.bio, to stay connected.